And we're live. <laughs> wow, that's an intro to the show. <laughs> I mean, I'm feeling a little silly today. Yeah, sometimes you gotta you gotta shock them a little. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Active Listeners with Mike and Shane. Each week, we will discuss our lives, our goals, and our expectations as artists, as well as discuss what it is to be an artist. Performers, visual artists, and musicians. Mike and I, we want to talk to you, and we want to talk to you about what you do, why you do it, and what that art really means to you. We'll have guests to discuss artistic expression and the all-around nature of the artist's lifestyle. And try to answer that question. Is there a de facto artist lifestyle? Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and join us in the conversation. Welcome to Active Listeners with Mike and Shane. And today, I'm not sure why I'm feeling so silly because today's topic isn't really that silly. No, sure ain't. <laughs> it sure ain't. Today, actually, we're going to talk a little bit about theater of the oppressed. It's actually something we touched on in our episode with Rags a little bit. We did. We did. We we did hit on um, this a little bit. We talked about it a very brief moment. Um, very brief. Yeah, I guess my interpretation of theater of the oppressed via Bowal is a form of theater that invites a community to change uh, a type of theater that is not just actors on stage performing at you uh and instead is more of an improv style of theater that once performed in front of what are known as spect actors uh you sort of encourage them to come up in have a conversation about what's happening. And typically the improv scenario on the stage involves an oppressor and someone being oppressed. Uh, you perform the scene and then you invite the audience to act on what they saw. How can you redirect some of that oppressive anger? And How can you get involved in a conversation? And doing it in this forum, uh, in this forum setting, is actually the forum theater uh, version of of this type of performance, um, in which you're more an active participant as as a attendee in the audience than really any of the other forms devised by the Brazilian theater practitioner Augusto Boal. Specifically, what I want to what I want to talk about is the usefulness of a theater setting for these type of messages. Yeah, it's a it's sort of from how I see it taking down that sort of barrier of oftentimes you hear of theater makers wanting to create distance between what is happening on stage and what the uh, what the audience is perceiving and it sounds like Bowal is doing quite the opposite. He wants to make you uncomfortable, but not so you can stew in it, so you can do something about it. Yeah. Uh, the first step is bringing everybody on the same level. I don't think I've ever seen this done where your performers were on a stage and your audience was in a seated area. Uh, maybe a discussion discussion starts that way, but n- usually there's always a moment in time before everything kind of gets going to where your, you know, the performers, quote unquote, will come down into the space and be in the audience with the audience uh, so that they can become active participants. And really that's what's important is that proximity and that closeness um, and that collaborative relationship with the people that are there to really be guided through this exercise in in social awareness. Yeah, and it's something that I, I didn't get introduced to until too late in life because when I finally did get the chance to study what the theater of the oppressed was, it highlighted the ways in which I, as a white man in this society, am an oppressor. And it it really, I really wish I had had that opportunity earlier. It was a man period, right? (laughs) Right, exactly. And 
I wish I had had that opportunity to learn that a little earlier. And for me, theater was always the thing that took what I didn't understand and turned it into something I could digest. Most of us, too, have encountered, if we haven't actively sought this type of thing out, um, most of us have encountered this in some way or shape or form. Um, think about any in-person sensitivity training you've gone through at work or at school, maybe in college, you had a program that you went through during your orientation period where you all kind of got together and maybe the the theater department puts together these small, uh, you know, interactive theater performances or presentations that in all honesty, you were thrown into, right? And you didn't really maybe get the interactive element of the thing because who's ready to do that in college orientation when you're 18? And, and But not only that, it's like not only are you not prepared to do that as a freshman in college, but how many people are prepared to do that work, period? I think we're all so used to walking into a performance space or and and being told what you should think and what you should feel. You can kind of um, shut down. You don't that you kind of just it's a passive thing, right? Um it's it's reactive uh, they turn the lights if it's off, active at all, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating and if you haven't had the opportunity to experience this for yourself or to to participate in something like this, there there are theater companies out there that are doing this type of work, um socially conscious groups of artists that come together for these purposes. If you're in the New York Troy, New York area, uh, there's a group called Creative Action um in Troy that does this work. Yeah, I hadn't heard of this theater company. And for our listening audience, I am currently in Virginia, but I am getting ready to move back to New York. And Whoop. I know, right? And <laughs> uh, you having mentioned this company makes me want to meet them and be a, a part of that community in, an, in really any way that I can and would be allowed to. Yeah, yeah. Check them out. They're easy to find on Facebook. Yeah, definitely something we could. Uh, all learn from um i think it's time to bring on our guest i think i think so too i think that aubrey our guest today is aubrey whitlock and i think she will be able to shine a lot of light onto some of the more generic terms and things we're talking about and like always we're gonna find out a little bit about aubrey and uh her past and um what what she's up to now so let's do it with us today, we have one Aubrey Whitlock. Uh, Aubrey is a friend of mine, a uh, former uh, colleague of mine, and all-around great person. So uh, welcome to our show. Welcome to Active Listeners. And welcome, welcome. we would love for you to introduce yourself, let us know your pronouns, and something fun about yourself. Cool. Um, yeah, as Shane said, I'm Aubrey Whitlock. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, well, this isn't the factoid that I want to use, but you might hear some noises behind me because my animals are jerks uh, and they only do loud stuff when I have the microphone turned on. So <laughs> I have I have a cat <laughs> and a dog. And kids. Yeah, I have yeah. an animal. I have an animal problem. They try to upstage me all the time. Um, <laughs> Never had a chance. Uh, yeah. So. <laughs> but a little bit about me right now. Currently, I am a long-term sub uh, in sixth grade English at a middle school here locally where I live in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Um, and I also work part-time at the American Shakespeare Center. And I have done that off and on since 2013 in various roles, uh, most currently the education associate. So in the before times, uh, I, when I was doing this full time before COVID hit, I was leading workshops and uh, doing teacher trainings and designing curriculum and stuff like that. And um, someday very soon, I hope to get back to that. <laughs> um, let's see. A fun thing about me is that I can do weird stuff with my very long toes. <laughs> <laughs> Like I can, you know how you can like interlace your fingers? I can do that with my toes and I can just like sit like that. That is a weird, that is a weird fact. And I can pinch, I can pinch with them really hard and I can like grab stuff. Part of me wants to see it. Toes. Part of me really, really doesn't. 
Okay. Oh, God. I'll send you pictures later. (laughs) Well, this podcast took a turn. I used to pick stuff up on my feet as a kid, but not because I had long toes, just because I was easily a distracted kid. Feet are distracting. Yeah, they're great. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You said something weird and funky about myself. I don't... what i got no it that we asked for it and we got what we asked for and i delivered (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) so uh you are also a podcast host yourself so go ahead and give yourself a little plug here sure yeah uh i am a the co-creator and co-host of a little podcast called the hurly burly shakespeare show that i co-host with my friend and colleague jess hamlet and it is a it's bi-weekly now for the first three seasons we were a weekly show uh and then you know jess got ass deep into writing her dissertation um and we we kind of cut things back so we we're every other week now jess and i talk about shakespeare at the 101 201 301 level because both of us fundamentally are educators first and then she's a she's more of the scholar i'm more of the actor um after that so actor and teacher after that so um it's a fun it's a really fun show we've been doing it for four seasons now we're getting close to the end of our fourth season um we've got about about last time i checked like eight thousand subscribers we just got written up in the borrowers and lenders journal uh through uga yeah um so there are a couple of scholarly reviews that just got written up about us in that one journal oh great which like that's like breaking news that just happened so that was kind of cool yeah that's huge um yeah we're proud of it it's a little it's a little project a little love project you know i love it so where did it where did it all begin for you i know you're not from virginia originally so yeah so i grew up in modesto california that is where all of your almonds come from um (laughs) And George Lucas. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome for him if you're a Star Wars fan. Yeah, I. Uh, that's where I grew up. It's in the Central Valley. It's in the very boring, conservative part of California. Um, and I guess, yeah, I, I started, you know, being a theater nerd when I was in high school. Um, although I saw my first play when I was like three, it was a Midsummer Night's Dream. And that was just kind of the beginning of the end, I think. Um, I think even my mom would have said, you know, that that was the beginning of all of the theater stuff for me. I got hit with the bug really, really early. Um, and then when it came time to go to college, I knew already I was going to be a theater major and that's what I did. Um, and what happened after that? 2005 is a blur. I, um, well, I, oh, that's what I did. I tried to run away to the circus. I tried to go to clown school and it turns out you can't get, um, federal student loans if you go to certain schools, certain, uh, like performing arts schools. Um, and I got into this place in London and then couldn't go cause I couldn't get loans to go. Um, so I became a teacher instead. And then I moved down to Los Angeles and, took a hiatus from teaching or from theater altogether and I started teaching there's an irony for me of <laughs> deciding to go from clown to teacher I know right it's basically the same <laughs> which is what I what I learned actually pretty quickly it's it's still you know failing very publicly for people to laugh at either way really <laughs> so uh, I taught in LA for five years and I got a master's degree in teaching and I taught for a couple more years up in the Central Valley. I moved away from L.A. and I came back to the Valley. Um, and that teaching job was so bad that it forced me to Google MFA Shakespeare. And the only place that popped up in my Google search was the Mary Baldwin Shakespeare and Performance Program in Stanton, Virginia, all the way across the fucking country from where I was. Um, so that is how I ended up in Virginia. I, you know came out there in 2013 and I I left but I came back rather quickly after that too. So I I got my um just like Shane did, I got my master of letters and my MFA. At Virginia does that. It like It just sucks you in, right? At Stanton in particular. And uh Ginny, stop. She's being such a butthead. Okay. <laughs> For those listening, Ginny is her dog. Yeah, Ginny is my dog. Who has decided to have a wrestling match with Biggie Smalls, my cat? Um, yeah, like right best, now when best I'm cat talking. Best name ever. 
It really is, though. <laughs> Although you didn't, you didn't get to meet Tupac. I don't even think I met you, Mike, before Tupac had died. So, because he was my first. No, cat but that's that I had also an, an awesome cat name. He, Tupac yeah, was a cool cat. He was a cool cat, and it was a cool cat name for him. Um, <laughs> honestly, like I, I ran out of Shakespearean like literary names, so I turned to my favorite hip hop artist for inspo. <laughs> for my pets <laughs> uh but yeah our dog is named after a, a marvel character so i know all about the nice <laughs> the nerdy na- naming of animals definitely oh yeah. yeah mine's a disney princess pet i know oh miko sweet miko <laughs> yeah but eventually like you run out of names in one genre you know and then you have to like branch out so middle school, you're teaching middle school right now. Yeah. How's times that? Are tough. <laughs> well, you know no, what? I mean, teaching, I... teaching yes. is, I mean, I have great respect for teachers. I have great respect for teachers that, that brave the pubescent hormonal rage of a middle schooler. I mean... Um, I mean, I was a high school teacher, right? That was what I always did before high school. And they're goofy enough. And I had mostly freshmen at that point. And I was like, nothing is weirder than freshmen. Um, (laughs) And it turns out sixth graders are weirder than freshmen. I'm teaching sixth grade English um, at this middle school. And I don't know, it's kind of sweet the way they have it set up. Because like this school is, um, I mean, it's Virginia. So like nothing is overpopulated. Um, So like this school is like a really big school. But there's like big physically, but there's only like, I don't know, 600 kids Uh, and each grade gets its own hallway. So like it's very high school with training wheels, like in normal times there, there are lockers there and like, but the sixth graders stay on that hall so they can go from class to class, but they can't really like go that far. You know, it's very safe for them, Um, which I found kind of charming and I still kind of do. I'm like, you know what? The sixth grade teachers are like a team and then the seventh grade and then the eighth grade, everybody's a team to like take care of these babies and then transfer them to the next hallway in the next year, which is adorable. And sixth graders, it turns out, they're not mean like seventh and eighth graders can be. They're still, they're coming out of elementary school. They're still yeah. very into routines and they, and they don't take it personally when teachers like bark orders at them and tell them what to do because they, I think they still find it kind of comforting, you know, like, um, and they, but like at the same time, they, they think they want to be talked to like a high school student. Like they think they're cool, like a high school student, but they very much need a lot of handholding and structure. And they're still like very tiny, like most of them have not gone through crazy weird growth spurts yet. So they're so little and like I just they're very cute and they're very sweet. Um, And I didn't think I would. Yeah, they are. They're my little babies. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you call them your babies. I kind of wonder, like, how did you how did your teaching style change from teaching in high school in California and then going through an entire graduate program and then, you know, going to teach middle school that much? Oh, okay. Is if that's if that I mean, I mean, maybe it. No, I don't think it has. I don't (laughs) think it has really. I like the, the biggest shift for me has been having to watch my mouth. Because words with sixth graders, like even things like but, just send them into hysterics. Um, (laughs) I mean, you just said but. (laughs) I know. know, And I I know. It still sends me into hysterics. I know. I know. But like, uh, I, I mean... Yeah, I mean, where I taught in L.A., it was it was in South Central L.A. It was like on the border of Watts. A lot of my students, well, depending on who you talk to and which community you talk to, it was either South Central or it was Watts. Um, and so like you and you would think that that would be like you'd have to be all hard and stuff. But with those kids, like I ended up being at that school in a period of kind of major transition. Um, they were they were a failing school in the LAUSD big system and this charter organization was like right in the middle of taking them over um and this is in the in the phase i'm i'm sure like the government still does this where they like take over failing schools mm-hmm. um i'm not sure how it's done in virginia but i'm sure it's done but in california that's what was happening so like if a school was failing too badly um they would 
kind of be like, okay, who wants to step in and fix it? And sometimes it was the city manager. Sometimes it was like more government coming in to like clamp down and fix the school. But um, Green Dot Charter Schools had just come into Lock High School and and started to take over. And it was a public charter. Um, and we were actually featured in a movie called Waiting for Superman. If anybody wants to watch that, um, you can catch me in the background in it, in this documentary about like charter schools. Um, so like, but because we were in that major transition and the kids, we just took on all of the kids in the district that were already there and made them kind of shift into this charter school structure. And it was rough, but it was so hard on them that all of the teachers and the kids in our particular school bonded a lot. What What is it my principal said? She was like, we're just going to love them hard. That's what we're doing. Mm. We're, we're loving mm. them really hard. And um, because what they did was they broke up the school, which was like 4,000 kids altogether. I mean, gee, I wonder oh, wow. why it was failing. It was 4,000 yeah, kids yeah. crammed into this school that used to be a factory and that looked like a prison. Um, and they broke it up. Yeah. And they broke it up into small schools. So like the small school that I ended up teaching was the kids that were grandfathered in from the old system. They were the 10th, 11th and 12th graders who were freshmen in the schools, like last gasp as a, as an LAUSD school. Um, so they were the ones coming in from like the terrible system and being like, sort of shoehorned into the good system. Um, so like they were the ones that needed the most handholding. And I feel like at this middle school that I've ended up at in bumfuck nowhere, Virginia is, is basically doing the same things with these kids. And the demographics are actually pretty similar. There's just more white kids. <laughs> like it was 60, 40 black and Latinx in LA with like literally one white child. One. I had one white student huh, the whole time. Wow. I don't know. I, I don't think my teaching style has changed really all that much at all. Um, I'm still kind of a goof. Amazing. <laughs> You're sweet. Um, but yeah, I, I'm still sort of a goof with these kids. And I, uh, I sometimes forget that they're still very literal. So like, it's just mostly like toning down my language and the way I usually speak, but <laughs> not, not the way I present material. Cause I, I really love, I don't know. I love teaching. Um, I do. Is your time in LA, um, is that where you were first exposed to uh, Bawal, uh Theater hmm. of the Oppressed? Uh, where, where did you pick that up? No, I picked that up as a freshman in college at UC Santa Cruz. It was like this three-quarter required theater survey course. And they, I'm sure you guys have took something similar at your colleges too, um, where it's like, you know, first quarter is like ancient theater and then you kind of move forward in history. So in the third quarter, we were given a copy. Well, given, I had to buy <laughs> a used copy from from my bookstore of, uh, of Augusto Boal's Theater of the Oppressed. And it is a text that has, like, if you look at it, I sometimes I hate podcasting because I really do wish it were a visual medium so that people could see my my actual decades of marginalia yeah that book um, has gone through some it shit just layered <laughs> <laughs> layered on each other in this book um and the rest of his books too but like it kind of blew my mind as a college freshman and i was like whoa this is crazy and kind of brechtian and of course every theater major goes through a brecht phase <laughs> yeah. at some point um you know <laughs> and you're like i'm gonna change the world with art <laughs> We still um, can. We still can. And, and then, I know, I know. But then I started, um, when I finally got to teach theater, when we turned into a charter school, all of a sudden this charter school had a budget and a principal who was like, oh, hey, you have a theater degree. Do you want to like start a drama program? And I was like, fuck yeah. So I wrote into my curriculum that I was going to do second semester I did like a survey of different types of theater and I introduced my kids to theater of the oppressed. Um, so I would do a unit on it and they would have to do part of their assignment was, it was a political theater thing, but it was mostly Bawal stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and they would have to design invisible theater moments that they could perform around school. Two varying results. I got myself in a little hot water one time. Uh, I, you know, you learn as you go. Um, I had to place some restrictions after one time these kids who swore they were not going to do like a realistic looking fight. They they had practiced it being like stylized 
Uh, and then it just, you know, adrenaline takes over student performers and it looked like a real fight. And then like one campus security guard who was my buddy was totally in on it and he didn't stop it. Right. And then another one we didn't, we forgot to tell, I forgot to tell him. Um, so that backfired. So like we put restraints on it after that and I was like, nope, no violence, no fighting at all. Not even for artistic reasons. Can you tell the audience what invisible theater is? Yeah. So invisible theater, uh, it's just performing when nobody knows you're performing. So like the example that Bawal gives in his book is like two people um, having a like politically charged conversation on a bus and it's loud enough and it's, but they have scripted it and they've practiced it, but they're performing it on a bus for unsuspecting listeners. And what it's meant to do is spark conversation, right. And get people kind of going and maybe even bring people in on it, which I, you know, you have to question the, uh, the ethics of that. Yeah. What is, I mean, what are the ethics of, of, I don't know, sort of forcing a performance on, on unsuspecting audience members? Mm, I mean, you know, the question is consent, right? So, uh, you know, I guess it depends on how you feel about people not, not knowing what they're participating in. It also makes me think of a flash mob uh, in a way. Yes, yes. I think the group Improv Everywhere in New York City also capitalized on this on this kind of mm-hmm. this tactic. Um, and they they would do it for funny reasons, right? They would do it as kind of like pranks for people in New York City. And and Boal's was a little more altruistic and purist than that. Um, and it's not. I mean, to be honest, it's not one of the forms of the theater of the oppressed that I like the best there are theater of the oppressed is a sort of an umbrella term for a bunch of different styles of theater that Boal created for different purposes and different political reasons. So what I ended up focusing on for my kids was invisible theater because that was an easy thing to do. They could create happenings on campus, some of which I caught on video, which were like epic. And it got them, it just got them thinking about theater in a different way, you know, and about how they impact their school community in a different way, which is what I wanted and how they can use theater for that. Right. Cause I, there's always this problem of is theater practical? No, it's not <laughs> like is, <laughs> you know, what's the purpose of this? Why should my child even be in this elective? You know, you get a lot of that and it's like, well, you know, they can actually use it as a tool to express themselves if they want to do that in my own work. Outside of teaching, I focused more on forum theater, which is another form of theater of the oppressed. Um, and I wrote my thesis about the Joker system, which is another form that even Boal documents as being short-lived. He kind of moved away from it in his own career after a while. Oh, did he? He did. Yeah. Uh, and not, I think, because it was like unsuccessful, but because it's so difficult to do. And the the Joker, the figure of the Joker as what that person is basically is a mediator between the audience and the play, whatever is happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they, in its purest form, he, you know, in the appendices of theater of the oppressed, um, he talks about this performance that he devised. Basically they put together a play and, and what happens is the Joker like steps out of the action of the play and speaks directly to what we call the spect actors, right? They're not spectators. They're not just passively watching. They become active. And that person you know, is supposed to like get their input and then turn and like put, you know, mediate that back into the actors. And so everybody's, it's this mutual like informing of one another. And when I wrote my thesis for my M Lit, I wrote about how Hamlet performs that function in his own play in Shakespeare's Hamlet, how Hamlet has all these soliloquies and he stops to talk to us and get our input. And then he goes back and he, he does stuff. Um, uh does some murders he did yeah he just does and he does some other dumb shit but like i what i was arguing for there was like a a conflation of like pure joker system political theater and hamlet like use hamlet as a vehicle for that but then like adapt it because audiences make things change right so that's what i was interested in um but yeah but while started using the joker more in a workshop setting after that like um not so much in performance but as the person who again turns the workshop participants into spect actors and like gets their input and coaches them through so that figure kind of evolved 
I think it's really interesting that a lot of the application is to purposely get together in a room with other spec actors, you know, and, and this Joker mediati- mediation figure and like work through issues in the community, issues in a school, issues, you know, yeah. that that's actually the one, uh, the only form that I've actually had any real life interaction with. Right. Um, there's a group here in Troy, New York, um, called Creative Action, and they do these types of devised performances. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting. I would say that if I ever walked into a theater space and didn't know that that was what I was about to experience, totally, it would be a little jarring. Totally. <laughs> I would also be really interested on how a lot of these techniques are going to be forced to evolve due to COVID. So much of the wall is the not only the interaction on stage, but the interaction with with your audience and and bringing them into the work you're doing physically. And that involves so much touch and levels of intimacy that it it makes me sort of question and wonder if that can continue or how does it continue? How do you create that intimacy in that setting when you can't be within six feet of someone and they're wearing a mask and you can't give them a prop to signify who they're representing on stage. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I think the, I mean, all of performance from here on out has been fucked up, right? It's going to, it's, you know, it's going to change when it comes back to quote unquote normal, like that's kind of messed up. But where I think actually where I think at least theater of the oppressed is going to get through the COVID period relatively unscathed is in the workshop setting. Right. Um, Cause a ton of what Bowal ended up doing later in his career was um, what he called the rainbow of desire, which was more like theater therapy and forum theater and legislative theater, which is the forum, but for specifically legislative purposes, like he, um, after he was allowed to come back home to Brazil. Yeah. Uh, he was exiled from Brazil for a while. Twice, um, right? And when he was allowed to come back, yeah. <laughs> and when he was allowed to come back, he was a representative of his district for a while, like of his home district. And he used um, the forum technique to like, to legislate. Um, but where I, I think workshops, I already know, can basically work virtually like I've, I've been doing them for almost a year now uh, since ASC had to shut down and like workshops were a big part of our bread and butter and we've managed to make a lot of those work like yeah the ones where you have to touch each other like the exercises that you do where you have to like Bawal does a lot of statuing and mirroring and you have to actually as Shane said physically touch people to do that and and that's about building trust but some of the other stuff you can still do and you can still generate really productive conversation virtually. Like we, um, I was able to design, I was lucky enough to get to design an entire, what we call shakes Academy at ASC. That's our programming, um, is S H X series, right? We have this shakes series and one of our productions last year was Othello. And I got to, I got to design like an entire week's worth of Bowal inspired forum theater workshops for Othello and generating discussion about diversity, equity, and inclusion and, and racism in Othello and how we, you know, dismantle white supremacy ourselves using forum theater, using what I had learned in my thesis. So like bringing Shakespeare's text in, but also, you know, doing some exercises that we could still do virtually. Like there's a lot of like mirroring you can still do because there's a screen, right? You don't have to actually touch somebody um so like i i think i think it'll be fine <laughs> it'll adapt but it'll be <laughs> yeah, fine. yeah we'll all make it through yeah yeah for the most part yeah the phys- the lack of physical contact though is just the worst have you have you uh brought this into your middle school teaching or are you strictly doing uh have, have you been able to bring any of this into the classroom or is that kind of Is there a hard line for you between your more scholastic duties for an English course? (laughs) Yes, duties. Uh, And and what you're doing with your theater, your theater teaching. Um, I haven't, but that's mostly (laughs) because of the nature of the position I'm in right now. Like I'm, I'm stepping in for somebody at 
like in the middle of the year. Um, and everybody at this particular school does um, co like, uh, what is it? Cooperative planning. So like I'm a planning team with the other sixth grade English teachers. Um, so, and which is great because it shares the workload, you know, um, and like sixth graders are, they're aware enough of the world to know that things are broken, right? Like kids are always more observant than we think they are, but they're still, sixth graders are still very me centered, very mm. egocentric. And it's, and it's, it's a tough line to walk. And like, if, if they were my kids, like my own personal children, yeah, like I would be, I would be talking about, you know, big, heavy world stuff and all the time um, and, and getting a little more political, but like there are other people's kids and you have no idea what level they're at or like, and, and you know, this part of Virginia is such a mixed bag politically. It would just be inviting a massive shitstorm on me sure. <laughs> as a temporary sure, employee, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. you know? Yeah. And there's, and like, what's sad is that anytime I bring up anything theater related, with my co-planners and I, these two ladies are great that I plan with, but I'm like, what if we just injected like a tiny bit of theater or a tiny, just a little, just a, just a scotch. Yeah. They're like, no, these kids can't handle that. No. <laughs> and you know, and it's like, well, on the one hand, how does, how is one unable to handle theater? <laughs> That's what I don't, I don't like, know. They can't, what can't they handle? Well, see, and that's what, I don't, I don't know. I'm still learning to calibrate like what a sixth grader actually can do. Right. Like if I'm expecting a lot and you know, so like I, I do defer to them because they've been doing it for longer. Like, I feel like that's only the sensible thing to do uh, is to trust the folks who have been doing that mm -hmm. particular thing longer than me. Um, so like, so no, you know, short answer. No, I haven't been able to inject a whole lot of, um, no theater at all, really, in any capacity, aside from the theatrics that I put on on Zoom and in hybrid classroom in person to try <laughs> to get the kids interested. You know, that's about all I get. If they were to let you put that little scotch in there, what would it what would it be? What would you what do you think you would? Oh, it would be Shakespeare, obviously. Sure. Sure. It would be a Midsummer Night's Dream, hands down. Like, <laughs> That's, you know, like, I, I really don't want to hit 11 and 12 year olds with really heavy stuff. Like, I just, I don't want to be the person that m makes them grow up too fast. You know, like, they're just yeah. so Aww. little and they're just yeah. so little and cute. And I just don't want to be the one to ruin their lives. I don't and like, let them know that the world is scary. I just I can't do it. <laughs> That's a noble way to look at it. And that is where you and I differ completely. <laughs> Shane can never teach middle schoolers. No, I don't. All... Shane's out here making kids cry. I can't I do it. I don't want to make them cry. It just happens to be a byproduct of learning about the world. Okay? I could also see a scenario where a bunch of middle schoolers made Shane cry. I could too. I could too. They're brutal. Yeah. I have a couple of kids that yeah, just delight in dragging me. <laughs> oh, and I, no. and I, you know, I mean, it's fine. I can take it and I can dish it out too. So like, we're okay, but <laughs> <laughs> they can be pretty mean. <laughs> Shakespeare is super not that. Like there are moments where Shakespeare or, you know, most theater can, can be, preachy or soapboxy not to make it like reductive but like yeah totally you know there are definitely stances you can take yep. in theater there's a whole uh style of of protest theater that isn't interactive mm -hmm. but there yeah. is a little bit of an element of shakespeare that is interactive if you're doing it quote unquote right yeah well that's what inspired me to go back to Boal when I was writing my Shakespeare in performance thesis, I was like, Oh, like, you know, the audience contact that I've been trained to do in plays in Shakespeare's plays and others, you know, speaks a lot to this inviting of the audience, inviting them in. That little bit of uh, research, you know, before we bring on our guest, uh, they almost always start with, can you bring the lights up? Can we can we see everybody in the room? We all need to be on the same stage right? in order to make any sort of yep. progress. Mm -hmm. And that's what the, uh, one of yeah. the many things that the American Shakespeare Center does. It puts right. uh, 
would you consider them spec actors no. uh, that sit on a stage? No. Okay. No, I wouldn't because they're not invited to change things. N- not yeah. not in the way that Boal envisions it, right? Like, yes, you know, it, it, you elicit a, a reaction from somebody, you know, and they're going to give you whatever they give you, right? And some people are going to make that uh, kind of scared face and like freeze up and other people <laughs> are going to play right into it and be like, yes, this is my time to shine. Um, but it's it's because <laughs> we've we've all worked at that playhouse. We've all seen that happen. Um, but I I wouldn't call I wouldn't call basic uh the basic audience contact that technique that ASC and other lights on type of theaters employ. I wouldn't call that turning them into spectators. Not fully, right? Um, they are they are more than passive recipients most of the time, but. Um, it was like you said, Mike, like they don't know, a lot of people don't know that they're walking into that. And I think a, a basic tenet of the theater of the oppressed is that when you go to a forum style, a forum theater performance, like you know what you're walking into and you kind of know or you will be told immediately what is expected of you. Right. Um, and, and ASC doesn't take that risk because they actually don't want to hand the reins completely over to the audience. They don't want to do that. Yeah. You keep talking about uh, forum theater. Is that just kind of the umbrella term for creating a theatrical situation where you include the audience to make changes in that or? Um, yeah, that's the style of theater where that is invited. And it's it's used more in workshops now uh, in Theater of the Oppressed workshops. But basically, uh, forum theater starts with the participants themselves bringing scenarios to the group uh, to then perform. They, maybe they've scripted it out like a moment of their own oppression, right? A moment that they have experienced in life of their own oppression. They play it out in front of the group with a partner right of the the moment that happens um and then the second time through like they 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 have a joker who's like okay what did we see how do we feel about this what are some solutions for this um because the whole point of forum theater is rehearsal for real life right there's oh that's a great way to think about it i yeah yeah there's no um catharsis right boal is actually Mm -hmm. really really anti-catharsis and he's like no Greek style theater with the catharsis at the end is coercive and it's forcing you to feel stuff when maybe you don't want to feel stuff. It's that idea of magic he talks about, right? It's that yeah. creating a solution out of nothing. Yeah. Right. Um and 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 forcing you to feel a certain way at, in a certain moment. He had a really big problem with Aristotle. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and he's oh, he's so anti-Aristotle. And the problem and the problem with catharsis, right, is that if you feel that catharsis in the theater and you like excise those feelings, then you leave the theater feeling free and clear and like all your problems are gone and you have no motivation mm-hmm. to go out and make change. And that is like the last thing that Boal wants, right? He goes even a step further than Brecht, right? Brecht was all about making you feel uncomfortable watching what you're watching. So that so that like it stays with you, that alienation factor. And Boal wants you to feel so alienated that you are revved up to go out and like start a revolution. Like that's the whole point. Um, so forum theater helps people do that. It's it's working through like you play through your oppressive scenario again and you try out different solutions and you discuss and then you try again and you discuss and you try again. And it's supposed to make you ready to go out and actually do it to handle those to, like, real life situations to, in real life yeah to shut yeah. down yeah to shut down your oppression the next time it happens right that's the whole point so i love i love that yeah. the focus also is empowering the oppressed and not bringing the oppressor to your level so they can understand yeah. your oppression modern activist theater it's theater for the oppressor it's theater mm-hmm. to make the oppressor understand right. what it's like to be oppressed right. when that yeah. process um it you know outside of it being community built it's also it's empowering for you yeah and not just the oppressors but it seems a lot of the language is for mm-hmm. allies as well you know it's about speaking up and speaking mm-hmm. out when you see someone being oppressed yes yeah i think there's room for all those kinds of theater right i think i think oppressors those of us in positions of privilege do need to sit and feel some empathy 
sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Right? Like, yes. And theater is great for that. You know, theater is really wonderful for teaching empathy, whether you're performing it or watching it. Uh, and I think there's room for that. But but that's not exactly what Boal is interested in. Although I will say he does and his... His inspiration for Theater of the Oppressed is Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which was about this kind of stuff, but in the classroom. And they both have an empathy for the folks in the oppressor position, too. They were like, they're very much like, you know, oppression hurts everybody. It hurts the oppressed more, but but the oppressors are suffering <laughs> under it, too, and they just don't know, <laughs> right? They just don't get it because their privilege is kind of cushioning them a little bit, but like, everybody's suffering in this system so everybody deserves some empathy and everybody deserves to be woken the fuck up in american in american history racism hurt white people too the book the sum of us um by heather mcgee she talks about uh how in the 50s and the 60s um the growth of the middle class and sign you know happening simultaneously with desegregation created a system where not only were people of color excluded from bettering their lives, but also uh, the working class white people in regions where, you know, they closed public pools because they didn't want to have to swim with people of color, where they closed public parks because they didn't want to have to admit people of color, that also the working class white people were hurt by that. Yeah. And it's a big part of feminist theory, too. Right. Like the idea that patriarchy hurts men, too. It hurts men a lot by telling them that they are base and that they, you know, uh, can't show emotion. And that's how we get caught up in like a bunch of toxic masculinity. Right. The reason it's so toxic is because patriarchy is forcing men to be toxic. Yeah. And like if we were free of it, like everybody would be better off. It's not just about elevating women. It's about breaking everybody free. So like, yeah, any kind of oppression hurts the oppressor and the oppressed just a different in different ways and at different levels, but it hurts everybody. Wow. Um, I feel like we could probably do another hour or two uh, with you, which obviously means at some point we're going to have to have you have you back. Thank you so much for coming out to talk to us. And as always, we are going to end by asking you, our guest, entertain us. Uh, entertain our listeners. All right, fine. <laughs> <laughs> this can be anything. You can read an ex you can read an excerpt okay. from um, Boal himself. You can tell us. I a told joke, her she could sit story, here in three minutes of silence if she like wanted to, to really like hit home. We could do that. Okay. Well, actually what I'm going to, it's, it's funny. Um, you know, I told you this book has been like well loved. So I am actually looking at my copy of theater of the oppressed right now. And one part where the spine just kind of falls, just flaps <laughs> naturally open, um, is one that I've highlighted many, many times. And, and I don't know, I, I here, here the stuff is in a nutshell, right? Um, so here, here's what I'll give you. The plan for transforming the spectator into an actor can be systematized in the following general outline of four stages. First stage, knowing the body. And I'm paraphrasing here. I'm jumping down a little bit. Second stage, making the body expressive. Third stage, the theater as language. Uh, one begins to practice theater as a language that is living and present, not as a finished product, displaying images from the past, simultaneous dramaturgy, image theater, forum theater uh the fourth stage the theater as discourse and this is this is the meat and potatoes right here simple forms in which the spectator actor creates spectacles quote unquote according to his need to discuss certain themes or rehearse certain actions and then it lists the other types of theater of the oppressed newspaper theater invisible theater photo romance theater breaking of repression myth theater trial theater masks and rituals so there is a a literal rainbow of of ways to approach political theater specifically um, and change making type of theater and that perhaps is what i want folks to think about perfect thank you so very very much
Uh, Aubrey Whitlock, thank you for coming. You can catch Aubrey on Hurley Burley Shakes podcast uh, bi-weekly where uh, she and her co-hosts discuss Shakespeare and his contemporaries, among other things. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so very much for coming. Yeah, yeah. You can follow me on Twitter at uh, Obs Whitlock if you want to follow me personally. I'm not that interesting on Twitter, but you can if you want. Um, I'm a little more interesting for the podcast at Hurley Burley Shake on Twitter or at Hurley Burley Shakes on Instagram. So thank you. It's been really fun to talk to you guys. Thank you for coming out. You heard her. Hop on that Twitter. Hop on the Instagrams and, and support some local theater. Thank you, Aubrey, so much for for taking the time out and talking to us today. You heard her. Please go support them, listen to their podcast, hop on their social medias. And Mike, I have a question for you. For me? Yes. I have been thinking a lot about our audience participation for this week, but I kind of want to hear what you have to say about it. Oh. For audience participation this week, what I would like to know is... Do our listeners think that something like this would be helpful for them in discovering ways to be a better ally or to to be your own best advocate? And if you'd be interested in attending something like that. And you can do that by hopping on our Twitter and checking us out at ActListPod. That is A-C-T-L-I-S-T-P-O-D. Or on our Facebook at www. Facebook.com slash active listeners pod. And hey, if you want to help Shane and I quit our day jobs, please go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash active listeners pod. Sign up. You'll get perks. We have extra hidden episodes. Maybe we'll make uh, Mike draw us a cartoon or something. I consent. So you heard it here. We want to quit our jobs, support our Patreon. Thank you for listening to Active Listeners. Come on in and join in the conversation. Peace. If you like what you hear, leave us a rating. And if you really like what you hear and you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash active listeners pod and become a patron. Our theme music, It's a Trap, was created by Remodel. Thanks for listening.